Thank you so much, music team. Could be seated, get comfortable. I should say uh, again that we we do have a faithful and gifted music team, and I know that's something that uh, we could take for granted. So I just want to say thank you guys for your faithfulness and your continued uh, service to our church. So, with that said, let's let's turn to the preaching of the word. James chapter one is our text this morning. James chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 2 to 12 to set the context. James chapter 1, and we'll read verses 2 to 12. The message entitled today is part 2, a lesson on suffering. Let's read the word of God together. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is the glory in his high position, and the rich man is the glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, But its flower and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under a trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Last week, you received a lesson on suffering, from James 1, 2-4. And you found answers to a few questions that are commonly asked with regard to the topic of suffering. First, how do you handle suffering? In verse 2, we learn that we are to suffer with intense joy. Secondly, we asked, what is the purpose of suffering? And according to verse 3, The purpose of suffering is to test the genuineness of your faith. Thirdly, what are the results of suffering? And according to verses 3 and 4, the results are suffering, excuse me, perseverance, maturity, and completeness. And now today, as we unpack verses 5 to 12, we'll see how James addresses three more questions about suffering in the life of a believer. Now these answers to these questions will help you and equip you to suffer the way God intends his people to suffer. God intends us to suffer and he intends us to suffer in a specific way. So let's look at this fourth question here. The fourth question that James answers for us with regard to suffering is this. 
What do you do in the midst of suffering? You pray. Let's read verse 5 again. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James assumes that we lack wisdom. He says, but any, if any of you lacks wisdom, we all do. We're not, we're not all wise creatures, are we? No, we're not. We are in need of divine wisdom. Because our, our faith is not based on personal feelings, but on knowledge and understanding of the promises of God's truth, which is spiritual wisdom. Wisdom is how to put your faith into practice. It's making the right decisions. It's the application of sound knowledge. It's the implication of right doctrine and truth. Wisdom informs us of what to do, what to say, and who to go for for counsel. And since we all lack wisdom, especially in times of suffering, because remember, this is the context again, we're talking about suffering. Since we all lack wisdom, especially in times of suffering, what do we do? We ask God. We ask God for wisdom. Look back in verse 5. Let him ask God. Why? Why ask God for wisdom in suffering? Well, consider Job. Consider Job's response to his so-called counselors in Job chapter 28, verses 12 and 13. He said, Where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, and listen to this, nor is it found in the place of the living. In other words, there's no wisdom to be found among men. Zero, spiritually speaking. And in verse 23, he says, God understands its way, and he knows its place. So there is no true wisdom found outside of knowing God. None. Therefore, we need to go to God and ask for wisdom only He can give. This is an imperative verb, which means James is not merely giving some advice here. Uh, it's a divine command. He's not saying it might be a good idea if you do that. Let me let me say what, let me tell you what helps for me. The implication here is that failing to go to God in prayer in a time of suffering is sin, because it's a divine command. So it's better to say, and it's better to translate this as: if anyone lacks wisdom, he had better go to God. He must go to God. Don't draw on your own wisdom. Because in a time of suffering, and I don't know about you, but in a time of suffering, when are your emotions the least stable? It's in suffering and in trials when our emotions tend to be up and down and sideways. So we need to obey this command to ask God to give you the ability to apply his word that richly dwells within you. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's where, that's the reservoir from which your, the wisdom comes. There is no wisdom outside of God's revealed word. 
He does not somehow mystically zap us with wisdom. He uses the word and his spirit to bring about the wisdom in the life of a believer. And he says, who gives to all? Who is this all? Well, again, the context, right? It's believers. God doesn't give his divine wisdom to all people. He gives his divine wisdom to genuine believers who ask. The only wisdom given to unbelievers is what? Repent and believe the gospel. But those, those who are in the kingdom of God, this should be encouraging to us. Because God gives his slaves wisdom. And James goes on to say that he gives it generously, abundantly, and without reproach. In other words, without reproach means to severely reprimand. That's the literal meaning. In other words, God will not chide us for coming to him. He will not turn us away and laugh at us and look down on us for coming to him like a little child. And look at the promise there. And it will be given to him. It will be given to him. That's a promise. God lavishes his wisdom upon us. And scripture is clear that when we approach him, our Father desires to meet our needs. Matthew 7. Jesus says in verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? When his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Now these are both rhetorical questions, right? Meaning, they're not intended to beg an answer. They're intended to make a statement, to prove a point. Of course, no man in his right mind would hand his little boy a snake when he asks for a bite to eat. It's just crazy. And then Jesus goes on in verse 11, If you then, being evil... Remember, who's Jesus speaking to? Pharisees, right? He says they're evil. You being evil, he throws in a little bit of doctrine of depravity there. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, if you then, knowing how to give good gifts, but he says, if you being evil, if you are such sinful creatures that you would even give uh, your children food to eat, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him. So Jesus revealed here that God gives liberally and vastly. In the same way he meets our physical needs, which is Jesus' point here in Matthew 7, he meets the spiritual needs of his slaves. In the context here, he grants wisdom to his children in suffering when they ask. Now at this point, it's necessary to make a clarifying statement about prayer here. And how it relates to this verse, okay? Remember the context. It's about suffering. So verse 5 is referring to the wisdom God grants when responding to the trials of life. 
It's very important to get here. This verse, verse 5, is referring to the wisdom God grants when responding to the trials of life. The implication? You can't make this verse your proof text to justify asking God to, quote-unquote, lead you into making a decision about buying a house, choosing a spouse, going into church, what college to go to, and so on. Now, there are other principles in Scripture to help you make godly decisions where Scripture is silent, and prayer should be a component of that because we're to pray without ceasing. But you can't use this verse to justify asking God for wisdom to make a decision because that's not the right interpretation, therefore it's not the right application. This verse does not apply to making decisions in this world. It applies to wisdom being granted to those who ask for those in suffering. And it's in times of suffering that we're faced with confusion and worry. It's in times of suffering that we're faced with discomfort, misery, hopelessness, grief, isolation. James is saying that the one in a season of trial must ask God for wisdom to respond rightly. Now, how do you pray? In other words, how do you ask God? Well, I think there's a lot of ignorance among evangelical Christians when it comes to prayer, generally, with regard to how we ought to pray, what to pray for, the manner in which we pray, the mindset in which we pray. Scripture does teach how we should pray. And the text before us really reveals the foundation of prayer. Faith. Look at verse 6. It says, But he, referring to the believer in the trial, must ask God in faith without any doubting. That's where you start. Do not pray unless you have genuine faith. That is the basic requirement for true prayer. Notice, number one, that he must ask. Implication that we, we need to do more than just think about it. We need to actually go to God and ask him, speak to him. And two, he must ask in faith, being completely confident in the power of God, that he is more than capable of directing our life. One commentator puts it this way. The prayer request must be backed by genuine trust in God's character Purpose and promises. Why? Why is there this requirement to pray? Well, James gives us the reason. He gives us the reason why faith is required. He says, for the one who doubts. The one who doubts what? Well, the one that doubts that God really cares for me. The one who doubts God hears my prayers. The one who doubts God is willing to change things. The one who doubts God's sovereignty. Questioning why God allowed the calamity to come upon my life in the first place. James says that man is like a surf of the sea. Which is going to be translated raging of the sea. Driven and tossed by the wind. The picture here is instability, subject to the ups and downs and mindless motion of the waves, tossed back and forth. 
This picture is quite clear in my mind. Because just this past summer, I got the opportunity to go to Alaska and go fishing. And one of the things that I did while I was out on the boat, when it was dreary and rainy and the fishing was very slow, when the fishing slow, you got nothing to do but sit there, right? It's kind of rare in Alaska. Usually, you don't sit there for long until you catch a fish. But this year was not good for fishing for me anyway. And I sat in this small boat, you know, waiting to feel the tug. I began to observe all of the different types of debris that would drift by. Logs, kelp, seaweed, and other things that I didn't recognize. They just drifted along aimlessly at the mercy of the tide, being anchored down by nothing, getting entangled in whatever crossed its path, crossed its path, including my fishing line. That's the person who doubts God. The person who doubts God is like a piece of kelp floating in the middle of the bay, going wherever the tide takes it. And the scripture says, what should that one who doubt expect? Look at verse 7. The answer is nothing. For that man, James says, the one who doubts, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? I mean, doesn't that sound, that almost sounds a little hard, doesn't it? You don't ask in faith, you get nothing. Sorry. Well, look at verse 8. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me ask you a question. Who is the double-minded man? Put it this way. Can a man serve two masters? He is either serving God or he is serving something else. You can't be double-minded and know the true and living God. So this double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, is the phony believer. The phony believer refuses to trust God in trials, and it reveals a superficial and counterfeit faith, because instead of purposing to avail himself to the divine resources through the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, prayer. He turns to human resources, which causes him to doubt. He turns to human wisdom, rather than singularly believing the Lord. So by way of application here, how often do you pray in a trial? Now I know it's not our natural response, Just like having intense joy isn't our natural response. But asking for God's wisdom and genuine faith is what we should do in trials. The fifth question that James addresses with regard to suffering is this. Ready? What mindset should you have in suffering? 
What mindset should you have in suffering? To put it simply in one word, humility. Humility. Our trials not only test us, but they break us, don't they? They humble us before God. Look at verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances, what's that? Well, this is the one who is at the bottom of the barrel. Financially and socially. Not because they haven't worked hard. It's just life that just dealt them a blow. They have suffered setback after setback, and they've suffered loss after loss. This brother is to glory in his high position. In other words, what's, what's his high position? It's, it's simply um, his exalted place in the spiritual realm. To glory is to rejoice. So the, the brother of humble circumstances, the one who is poor in poverty, must rejoice as a Christian because he has been exalted through Jesus Christ. And he is the one who usually trusts God the most. Why? He has nowhere else to go. And for those in our midst who are not rich, which is just a couple of you, right? Who are struggling to make ends meet, who are living from paycheck to paycheck, who can't seem to get ahead, this verse is very encouraging and helpful. Because though one may be on the lowest or humblest of circumstances in this life, yet at the same time are in a high place spiritually. So you could be poor physically, not having a dime come into your name, being worth nothing, and we talk about our net worth, we could be worth nothing. We could have no inheritance on this earth. But in Christ, you have an inheritance beyond your imagination. We cannot comprehend that. We can't comprehend heaven, can we? Nevertheless, James says it's okay to rejoice in that. Glory in that. And then verse 10, what about the rich man? What's he to do? How is the rich man going to be humble? Because Jesus says it is harder for a rich man, or it's easier for a rich man to go to the eye of a needle than to enter into heaven, right? It's hard for a rich man to be humble. Right? I can make a political statement, but I'm not. Verse 10. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. What does that mean? Well, we know that death and disease and suffering shows no partiality, does it? The rich also suffer as the poor do. The rich man also suffers blows that happen in life. The rich, the rich people also experience setbacks. They experience the death of a loved one or loss of health and so on. They experience the same things poor people do. But why rejoice in that humiliation? Because in a place of worldly humiliation, he's brought to a place of trusting God. Something that money can't buy. Because like James says, he goes on to say, because the flowering grass will pass away. In other words, he will be brought to the reality of how transitory life is. That life is a fleeting moment. That the reality that we're all just strangers passing through. 
The reality that we're just nothing but dust, a grain of sand. And all of the gold in the world can't change that fundamental truth. What we all accumulate in this life, we only have for a short while, and then it, what happens? I'll give you a hint. It happens to 10 out of 10 people. We accumulate things and we die. To a time unknown to us, and then as the saying goes, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? And for the rich man, I hope this is making sense, for the rich man, trials help give him that perspective. Because we will leave it all behind. You know, when we're in a hard trial, the millions that we're all working to save, right? You know, because let's face it, as, as Americans, we're richer than most, right? So there's a sense in which some of us here are today are richer. There's also a sense in which just living in this country makes us rich. And I think that's something we have to consider. But we have application here because to the extent that James's readers experience poverty, we, we don't know. We don't know what that's like for the most part because of where we live. There's a documentary called Citizen USA, a 50-state road trip. And the filmmaker traveled to all 50 states witnessing hundreds of men and women from all over the globe becoming American citizens. After the oath, after they all took their oath, she interviewed some of the brand new citizens by asking, why did you choose to become an American citizen? Some of the answers were quite funny and lighthearted, but some were very emotional and heavy. In response to the question, why did you come to America, one lady from the Philippines answered, you have 911. You just call, and they come to your rescue. Isn't that, isn't that when was the last time you took for granted 911? Like, no matter where we're at, we just get on our phones and, we, and they come. And only Americans whine and complain when they don't come in 30 seconds. Isn't that amazing? Most countries don't have an emergency phone thing. Another responded with customer service. Another thing is that Americans have little patience, bad customer service, right? Most countries don't even have customer service. And of course, you can't think America without Disney World, right? One lady said Disney World is why she came to America. But on, on a more serious note, on a heavier note, one person from Afghanistan said freedom. That's it. And there was one response that really gripped me. It was from an Iraqi man. His response revealed just how rich we as Americans are. Living in the culture we live in. When asked, why did you become an American citizen? His answer was in the form of a brief story. Let me give it to you quickly. One day, the man was, out, out, was outside in his front yard, and he saw his neighbor walking his dog from his front yard. And he, he noticed something strange he'd never seen before. He noticed fastened to each of the dog's paws was something 
foreign to his imagination. So he was intrigued and curious. He went over to ask the neighbor, what do you have on your pet's paws? His neighbor told him that he placed shoes on the dog's paws so that the hot pavement would not make the dog feel uncomfortable. Seriously. Then after telling this brief story, the Iraqi man looked at the camera with tears in his eyes and a sober expression. And he said, in my country, people are treated worse than dogs are treated in America. So my point is, if you can afford to buy shoes for your dog, you are filthy rich. If, If you are concerned about the comfort of your dog in any degree, you are filthy rich. So therefore, I, th- I think we can, we can relate and we can put ourselves in the category uh, in James 1 with, with the, the people of rich, rich men. Because the overwhelming majority of us here today have never really experienced extreme poverty. Have we? So, so my point, my whole point in, in telling you that was we have to be careful as American Christians not to hold too tightly to our possessions. Because when we do, it's going to distract us from eternity. It's going to distract us from our high spiritual position. So James is saying that when you suffer, you must not rejoice in your possessions or find solace in the things of this world. Rather, in your suffering, you should glory in the one who possesses you, not not things that you possess. But James isn't done here. Like Paul, he keeps going. And he elaborates on verse 11, this idea of rich men and their possessions. For the sun, verse 11, which is a bright burning ball of fire in the sky, rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. Now this illustration here is intended to paint a picture for us, okay? Like the hot sun, coupled with the burning wind, it kills, uh, it kills the grass and the beautiful flowers and beautiful trees, leaving what? leaving a dry and desolate piece of land. Now, if you read this, here's, now here's where the historical background helps us a little bit, okay? We live in the Pacific Northwest, and how many of you have never lived anywhere else? You grew up in the Pacific Northwest your whole life, right? Okay? Or maybe in even a moderate climate. Well, you know, there's places in, 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 in America where it gets hot, okay? It does. But, but listen to this, though. It doesn't compare to the Middle East, it does not compare. I'm sorry, but it's true, because I've been there. Arizona summers, California summers, Chicago humid summers do not compare to Middle Eastern summers, and this is who James is writing to, remember? They lived in the Middle Eastern region called Palestine, the Diaspora. I remember 
when I went to Kuwait in August, and we came from Alaska, remember? We came to Kuwait from Alaska. We got to our tent where we slept for a few weeks before we went to Iraq. I remember the first time we walked out for breakfast, mind you. Walked out of our tent to go to the chow hall. And I'm not exaggerating. This is not hyperbole, okay? It was like walking in front of a blow dryer. It was so hot and the wind was so hot that you, just, you had to like literally like lean into the wind. And it, and it just drained you. That's the kind of illustration that James is painting for us, okay? So like the hot sun has that effect on the earth. The trials of life causes the things we cling to to wither, wither away and disappear. And when the rich man's possessions are gone and of no use, what's he left with? He's left with God, right? So spiritually, James' point is the rich man and the poor man end up at the same place in their trials. Same place. Even for the rich, the educated, the famous, the gifted, the beautiful. When they're experiencing a heartbreaking loss of something physical, their bank account is of no use, right? No use. A rich man gets the shocking news that his daughter has cancer. The million dollars he has in his bank account, the square footage of his house, you're making all of his car, his education. Worthless, right? So trials, back up to verse 11 here. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So in other words, his self-reliance, his self-trust, his self, self-worth will vanish. And he learns that riches don't do anything. They don't help. Now there's a lot to understand in verse 9 to 11. I understand. <laughs> So let me just summarize before we move on to the last question. Here's the big idea. If you're poor and have nothing, your trials remind you that your treasure is in heaven and how rich you really are. If you're rich and you have abundance, and considering, again, where we live and the time we live, I think that places us more in that category of being rich. If you're rich, the trials teach you that this world is a fleeting moment and how short it is and what we have does not last. So, what's the mindset we should have in suffering? Humility. Humility. In other words, our trials humble us. They break us. Now lastly, what is your reward after you have suffered? What is your reward after you have suffered? In verse 12, according to James, a crown. Verse 12, he says, blessed. 
which means happy or satisfied or content. It really plays off joy in verse 2. Blessed is the man who perseveres under a trial. In other words, he, he is the man who doesn't give in. He keeps on going. He never relinquishes his confident trust in God. For once he has been approved by God, implication, to be approved is to pass the test, right? To pass the test with his faith intact. And when he does that, he has demonstrated that he's a true believer. And James says he will receive the crown of life. This is the promise of a reward for true believers. And what is the greatest promise God has ever promised to his elect? Eternal life, right? Life eternal. And James, like Paul, he likens the Christian life to a runner's race. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So this crown, this crown that James speaks of and that Peter speaks of and that Paul speaks of, it's the reward at the end of the spiritual race that true believers as participants in the Christian life will receive. It's the crown that that will be received by every Christian at the end of the race for their saving faith in Jesus. So you picture a runner standing on the podium as the victor, bending down to receive the prize because he's finished the race according to the rules and did not fall or cheat or become injured. In the same way, we who persevere in our trials will receive from our gracious master this crown. This crown of eternal life because those who persevere and who are approved by God give evidence of salvation. Now I'm afraid we must be dogmatic about something. We must be dogmatic about who specifically this crown is given to. Verses, verse 12. Look at verse 12. Which the Lord has promised to those who what? Who love Him. To true believers. And how do you know who the ones are who really, truly, genuinely love the Lord? How do you know you will get this crown of life? How do you know that you love God? We don't have to wonder. Scripture is sufficient to answer that question as well. John 14:15 Jesus said, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." So how do you know you love God? And how do you know if this whole lesson on suffering really applies to you? Here's the answer. You have a genuine desire to obey God's word. That's the difference between a phony believer and a true believer. There is strong conviction and purpose and conscience to obey God's word. 
because that's where God's commandments are found, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So only those who obey Jesus, that give evidence of true salvation, will receive this crown of life and thank the Lord for trials because trials are the, is the vehicle through which he tests us, right? So I hope this two-part series on suffering from James has blessed you and equipped you to suffer the way God intends. God intends us, his unworthy slaves, to suffer with joy. He gives us trials to test the genesis of our faith. And what results from the testing of our faith is perseverance, maturity, and completeness. In the midst of our suffering, we should pray and ask God for wisdom. We should have a humble mindset. Not trusting in our riches. Not relying on our riches to get us through our trials. And then to end this rich passage about trials, James says that there is a crown that will be rewarded to us. And and I must say, it's not wrong for that to be your motivation. I've heard people say that, you know, I I don't want to do good works and I don't want to obey God for the reward. Well, the Bible doesn't say you can't do that. Let the motivation for your perseverance to be to finish the race. Finish the race. Paul said, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What was his motivation for staying in the race? To get that crown, right? Just like the marathon. And I've never ran a marathon, but I've ran a few miles in the military. What gets me through that last quarter mile is the lack of punishment I'll get. You don't necessarily get a reward, but you get a lack of punishment. So so let, let, let that be encouraging and let that sink in. Let that keep your be the cause to keep your eyes fixed on the course. To receive that crown. And may the trials that God brings into your life test you and mold you into the thing, the workman that He's created you to be. All for His glory. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you, you have given us this weighty lesson on suffering. Thank you that we can know how to suffer and what to do and how we should think and what our reward is. I pray, Father, that a reward that's waiting for us will give us fuel to keep the course, to not grow weary. persevere, even though this life is so hard sometimes, Father, dealing with death and sickness and setbacks, let us go to you and ask for wisdom. 
Let us persevere with your help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.